Hello everyone, it's April 19th, 2022. This week, more news on the SLS wet dress. They say no news is good news. Well, we have more news to talk about. But we're also taking a look at some lunar rover concepts. There's no downside to that. Rovers are always cool, especially on the moon. All right, let's do it and lift off. And we've the tower. Welcome to episode 355 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. Uh, and no Dennis today. Yeah, it's the Ben and David show. So Dennis is, uh, what's he doing? He's like scurrying about trying to prepare for a NASA visit, which yeah. sounds, just the way that he worded it in the message this morning made it sound like, oh no, like NASA are coming. I have to get ready, yeah, you know? Yeah. But it's not really his boss, obviously. But Yeah, right, right. So I guess it's just us this week. So I guess in the news, right, one thing we didn't, um, one thing that I would like to bring up, uh, I did read that Shanjo 13 has uh, successfully landed after, what, 162 days in orbit or something like that. So I didn't realize how long they were up there. Uh, So I guess time just kind of flew by, but it was a record for China. And all three, I guess, what are they called? Taikonauts came back safely, uh, landed not too far from where they launched, actually, which is kind of interesting. They landed like about like 80 kilometers from the Jiuquan launch center. So uh, I guess it's just a short ride back. But um, yeah, completely successful. So I just wanted to mention that. Um, congratulations to the astronauts. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, and then one thing I wanted to mention, I mentioned this last week, um, Northrop Grumman has, um, or I'm sorry, uh, Lockheed Martin has a... Uh, Mission augmentation port, uh, uh, basically just a docking port standard that they're calling the map standard. They're saying it's open source. They're not just saying it's open source. It's actually open source. Um, I finally got my hands on it. Um, and it is under a creative commons license, which is really cool. So I, the reason I wanted to point it out was because, uh, before when you went to their website, um, you could request a copy. And they said, we'll send you an email. And then they don't send you an email. Now you have to put in your, your name and your, uh, email and your phone number. And then when you click submit, it actually gives you a link to their PDF right there on the page. Um, and it's just hosted on a server. I, I could plop the, the URL in the show notes, but I feel like that's probably not what they want me to do. I mean, it, it's, it's open source. So like, you know, I, I, I can hand this out. It's, it's in the public domain, but I, I feel like they are, they're collecting emails and phone numbers and I kind of just don't want to mess with that. But, um, <laughs> it, it is, it is now easy to access. Uh, and it looks like a pretty good, uh, a pretty good standard to me. I mean, it, the, the mechanism depicted looks uh, about as simple as it gets and, you know, you can't, pass people through it because it's like six inches wide seven inches wide uh but oh by the way it is inches it's uh it's an imperial <laughs> standard <laughs> it's, it's got all sorts of weird fractional inches in there uh i mean decimals not not fractions but it's all mm-hmm. it's all it's all a little little fuzzy but yeah it's there if you want to go take a look at it. it looks pretty cool uh i i would really like to uh do a a cad mock-up maybe a 3d print but i'm not I'm not promising myself anything because I've got too many things, too many projects right now anyway. Okay, so let's talk about the wet dress rehearsal again. Uh, you titled this "In Defense of Damp Dress Rehearsal." No, well, so I've got a couple. I got a couple of different sections. The first section mm-hmm. is in defense of the damp dress rehearsal, but but yeah, yeah. So defend the damp dress rehearsal, which was <laughs> I think that was last week's yeah title, the title of last week's episode. Yeah, right. So so the idea of the damp dress rehearsal is the 
the modified version of the wet dress rehearsal that they uh, proposed, which is basically um, the ICPS, the interim cryogenic propulsion stage, uh, is it, it's got a leak. Or, or rather, it's not le- leaking enough that uh, there's a check valve that's stuck. So um, they said, okay, well, we'll just not fill the upper stage. And, you know, that's less than wet. And so that's got to be a, a damp dress rehearsal. And this week, um, NASA came out in defense of their damp dress rehearsal technique, which had been uh, pretty widely criticized. And so they call it uh, minimum propellant operations uh, rather than a, a damp dress rehearsal. And they said uh, that it meets the majority of test objectives and gives a, quote, reasonably good set of data. Uh, there are 25 critical events uh, within the terminal phase of launch, which is that terminal phase is what the wet dress rehearsal is there to test. Um, so 25 critical events and only two are specific to ICPS. So they're saying like, you know, two out of 25. I think that uh, only two are specific to ICPS is um, a little oddly phrased uh, because Two could be specific to ICPS, but if 20 of them are shared between the two, then that's, you know, still half of your data that you're missing. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I trust NASA to be able to make a, a good call on this. And it's a little bit of a moot point. We'll get to that in a sec. But one of the things that we didn't know that they wanted to do, I don't, I don't remember if we knew this, uh, when we recorded the show last week or not. Um, but instead of tanking the ICPS um, at all, they were going to do um, their cool down phase where they, they're pumping a little bit of, uh, of propellant through the lines to get them nice and cold. Uh, that's part of the slow fill phase. And then they were going to stop before they got to the fast fill phase. And um, so it's, it's not like they're completely neglecting the upper stage. Um, and they said that, hey, when we're doing this this slow fill, getting everything down to cryogenic temperatures, that's when we see leaks. So, um, so that's like the the major the major issue there, uh, specifically hydrogen leaks, right? Because hydrogen is so freaking small. I think we did mention that last week. Oh, okay. I don't know if we use the term slow fill phase, but I think that that was in last week's show. Yeah, did they want to cool down those parts um, specifically because that's when you see leaks? Something to yeah, that effect. Okay, good. Good, good, good. Okay. So when they were doing this defense, they were saying that the, the doing this defense, when, when, when they were talking about why they, they believe that their, uh, their limited, limited propellant operate or minimal propellant operations, uh, were, uh, were still a good idea. So the, the plan was to still do, uh, the wet dress rehearsal on April 14th. I think that's Thursday. Um, and then after that, they would, uh, do their rollback to the VAB like they were going to do anyway. And then once they were in the VAB, they were going to be able to replace the helium check valve. Um, they said it's easy to get to, easy to change out. So they're not really worried about that check valve. Well, here's why this is a little bit of a moot point. We get to April 14th and they didn't abort. Uh, there are a couple of different uh, issues that cropped up. So first off, um, they were late to get started due due to uh, a, a, an issue with their nitrogen gas supplier. This is apparently um, a, a company that they're buying nitrogen from, and they've been having issues actually delivering it to the site. And I, I don't know if that's what was going on here, 
that caused them to start slow because you'd think that they would have the nitrogen already in their uh, on-site tanks well in advance, but uh, they had to delay, uh, I think, uh, like two hours. Then when they finally started doing propellant loading, um, they're in the slow fill phase for locks on the core stage and they exceeded a temperature limit. So I, I don't know what temperature uh, limit was exceeded. Um, and I don't know if they went above it or below it. Like did something get too cold? Did something get too hot? But anyway, they, they halted their propellant loading. Uh, they worked the issue. They found a solution that is yet to be described or announced and they restarted their slow fill, uh, around noon. They started the whole thing, I think around nine 30. Uh, so they, they, restart their slow fill uh, around noon. About 30 minutes later, they started the uh, liquid hydrogen uh, fill operation. And then 30 minutes after that, um, they had gotten through the slow fill phase and they were getting into the fast fill phase of the liquid hydrogen. And then there was a surge in pressure. And I didn't do too much digging here because it's just a bunch of details that aren't terribly interesting, um, right? Like the the issues and or the problems and the fixes are interesting. This kind of, of storytelling is barely, barely even a story. So I don't know if this was an issue, a pressure rise in the locks or the hydrogen, uh, but there was a pressure surge. Um, and so that at that point, they halted both propellants and they started, you know, trying to figure out what's going on. And they wound up switching to what they called a modified fast fill, according to NASA on Twitter. I don't know what that means. So they keep going and uh, they get to a point where they're about half full on liquid oxygen and about 5% full on hydrogen. So if they had just started their hydrogen fast fill, this couldn't have been that much longer after they restarted. And they, uh, at that point, there was a leak in one of the umbilicals on the core stage. So then they go, okay, core, the core stage is, is pretty much toast for today. They decided to stop propellant load there and they decided let's just try and get the ICPS propellant lines chilled down. Um, and, and it, it seems like they got a little bit of that work done, uh, before they had to completely, uh, <laughs> call it a halt. So then they said, okay, well, we're going to stop for today. We're going to look at our options and we'll come back and, and, potentially uh, take another run at the wet dress rehearsal again. Well, that was on the 14th. Yesterday, uh, the 16th, uh, yesterday for us, so this is Saturday, they uh, said, you know what, we're actually, we're going to stop. We're going to roll the, the entire rocket back to the VAB. We're going to uh, fix it. And then we're going to look at doing a wet dress rehearsal at that point. Uh, so they did a quick announcement uh, Saturday. They will be doing uh, a briefing. I don't know how thorough, but they'll be doing a briefing April 18th. So that's Monday, the day before the show is published. So when they made this announcement, they, they said the reason that we're doing this is to get the nitrogen supply issue <laughs> worked out. And it's like, yeah, that, that may be your headline, but we know that, you know, this rocket probably needs to to be stopped and fixed. So um, their off-site supplier is actually going to be doing some upgrades to their system off-site. So 
I, like, I don't know if they're piping it in. Like, I, I thought that they were trucking in uh, all their gases. I, I can't imagine that they're, that they're piping them in. So, like, maybe the truck just showed up late because they had a hard time filling it off-site. Like, I don't, I don't know. But anyway, that that's sort of the headline. But they're also going to take the time to to work some fixes. It's not clear how how strict they're going to be on actually getting these fixes done. So the helium check valve should be really easy to fix. I think that one's, uh, you know, as good as guaranteed to be fixed, but the umbilical leak might be a little tougher. So luckily it's not, the leak isn't happening in the rocket. It's happening on the tail service mast. And, and they believe that the leak is, uh, somewhere inside a purge enclosure, um, which it seems like should be an easy fix. It's not got a lot of parts. Uh, it doesn't have very many penetrations through the enclosure. Um, so that'd be like, you know, an inlet and an outlet and a vent, you know, something like that. And they, they said that there are only a few penetrations and all of them, they, they said there are a few discrete penetrations, which I read as there are a few penetrations and each of those penetrations is discrete, which I don't know. Maybe I'm misinterpreting that. My, my initial interpretation was they're all just drilled, reamed and threaded holes. Um, but they, they actually might be, uh, more geometrically complex. And they're saying, you know, when these geometrically complex things are considered discreetly, the number goes down. It's like, well, yeah, that doesn't mean that you have a few, you know, a low number of interfaces, but I, you know, I don't think I was too far off with my initial, with my initial interpretation, but, um, they said that, uh, that the issue should is expected to be with one of these, uh, one of these penetrations, one of the holes drilled, uh, in the enclosure. And so, diagnosing the issue should be pretty easy and hopefully it'll be easy to fix. Maybe you just have to, you know, re-weld something or, or re-braze something, but they are not, they're kind of hedging their bets on actually fixing that leak. I'm going to wait to talk about that once we get into scheduling. Cause I think that's where we really, we see more impacts than explanations. So I'm going to, I'm going to hold off for a sec on that. So, you know, the headline is we're waiting for the nitrogen upgrades and NASA specifically said that the reason that they're rolling back is to limit wind shear stress accumulation on the vehicle. Um, you know, every time the wind blows, there's a bending moment on the rocket. It kind of sways back and forth and that causes stress inside the, the vehicle and that just accumulates over time. So they're saying, you know, we're going to, uh, we're going to protect the vehicle and we're going to go back to the VAB. It just, <laughs> I don't know. They're, they're trying real hard to, to act like this isn't a problem. And I don't know if, if that's optics or if it truly isn't a problem. Um, it, it seems like you'd really want to fill your upper stage <laughs> with propellant before you try to fly it. But so a, as, you know, as they're actually doing these repairs, they're, they're calling it, uh, uh, an aggressive attack or, or a, a vigorous attack on the uh, low hanging fruit. So like, the vent is really easy to replace. So they're going to take care of that. Um, looking at the purge enclosure, you know, there, there could be more difficult issues to solve, but they're going to go after the really simple issues and uh, see if they can get that checked off. And, and they, NASA also said that all of this is fine. 
Um, and, and I, I agree with them, uh, in, in this aspect, they said that they're still within family of their first time operations for, for example, SLS had five or six tanking tests before its launch. And so if shuttle can do it, SLS can do it. And you know, I, I, I don't disagree with them. Like it, this is a huge rocket with a lot of things that can go wrong with it. And it's a huge rocket that you want to be able to fly people on. So like, let's be careful. Let's be tolerant of, of, you know, things going a little slow that I think that's all okay. You know, and if I think it, it must be true. Right. Cause, uh, um, the amateur space schmuck. So my uh-huh. opinion is, is really important here. Okay. Um, so getting into, when Artemis one is actually going to fly, right? <laughs> so they, they have three windows right now that they are hoping to target. Uh, one in June, one in July, uh, one, one at the beginning of June, one between June and July, and then one between July and August. And it's less than reassuring when NASA says, uh, that their rocket and spacecraft can wait to launch well into fall <laughs> and what they're what they're saying is like normally you don't you don't brag about uh how late you can do a launch but in this case uh they want to be really clear that they can launch later if they need to um if when they actually get to the wet dress rehearsal uh if they find issues that are going to take a while to to figure out that's okay um, but also who knows when they're actually going to be able to get to the wet dress rehearsal, um, because they are not super confident that, that these repairs are going to go very quickly. Like I said, if it looks like it's going to take too long to, to fix the tail service mast leak, they said that they might look at their schedule risk and decide maybe they'll just wait to do the wet dress rehearsal until right before they're ready to do the launch run out, do the wet dress rehearsal, take a day or two to think about it, and then plan their launch right then and there. Um, which seems really a, a weird way to to plan this whole thing out. Uh, it j- I don't know. Something just strikes me as odd. Uh, in, in the notes I wrote, does this count as uh, fail late, fail often, instead of fail early, fail often? Let's just fail as late in our schedule as we can. Yeah, it seems kind of risky to me. But like you said, they, they probably, we assume they know what they're doing. And we're just like the armchair right. rocket scientists here. So And like, it, it's got to be related to... It's got to be related to wanting to keep the vehicle off the pad, right? Like maybe they have a certain mm-hmm. number of days that they've allotted uh, that, that, that they allow the vehicle to be exposed to the elements. And maybe they're, you know, starting to eat into that margin and they're starting to get a little upset about it. I mean, that, that's got to be what it is, right? Yeah, I would think so. I mean, it, it kind of reminds me of like the Saturn V when they had those issues with the tail fins because, you know, that particular rocket stood on its fins and then they had some issues because they were like, you know, bringing it out and doing tests and eventually mm-hmm. those fins started to give way. They started to fail. And so it's just there. there is probably a, like an awful lot of wear and tear that you put on a rocket just rolling it out because these, these, these things are meant to fly once, <laughs> which also means they're meant to roll out once or twice, you know, like not often, like it's, it's, it's all built in to uh, the vehicle, I think, how often you can do things like this. And they maybe did not anticipate the wet dress rehearsal taking this long. And so now they're having to like push this all back and say, okay, we got like one more shot. So we better wait until we're sure. Really? Why, why would you like, you, you shouldn't, you shouldn't design a vehicle with the expectation 
that for, you know, this first really important test that it's going to have to sit out for very long. Like, no, you want to design the vehicle for the job it's actually going to do. Yes, it mm -hmm. has to get through testing, but that that shouldn't be baked into the design to the extent that, you know, the rest of the vehicle design suffers. I, I, I would. Right. It's the way I would think about it. Yeah. So Artemis one, uh, will launch at some point. And I thought this was an interesting, an interesting way to, to talk about some ISS operations here, kind of shoehorn this in. So, um, actually flying Artemis one, uh, is that date is actually coupled to activity on ISS. Um, because Artemis one will defer to the launch of crew four. And then what's funny is crew four is going to be deferring to the landing, the, to the landing, to, to the landing of Axiom one. And they, they want to be able to land, uh, Axiom one and then take 48 hours to do post flight reviews before they launch crew four. So there's kind of this causality chain going on here. By the way, crew three is supposed to be returning home as early or or hopefully before May 10th. Uh, May 10th, they start getting into what's called a beta cutout. So beta is the angle of the station's orbit relative to the sun. And so there, there's a period where the, the beta angle is weird and they're not uh, the, the mission rules say they, they can't have uh crew dragon depart during that time. Um, but if they miss the May 10th opening of the beta cutout, crew three is rated to stay at station until the middle of June. So that's okay. Another thing that is, uh, another causality chain <laughs> happening here is, um, waiting on crew three is the second uncrewed demo of Starliner. And so that's, hoping to fly May 19th. So you get uh crew three coming back before May 10th. And then May 19th, you have uh Starliner uh, doing its second on orbit on orbit demo. That will be really interesting. This, this took so much longer than I expected. I don't know about you, uh, David, but when, when Starliner's uh, first orbital test flight happened, I thought that they were going to be flying to station within a couple of months without doing another test. Like that's just the way it looked like it was going to go. And not only are they doing another test, but they're doing it years later. I did not expect it to take that long. That's true. But obviously, um, with all of their, what does we like to say? Was it the 66 issues? I can't even remember now. I did not anticipate it either, but I quickly started to realize that, yeah, that's what was happening. And yeah, so here we go. At, I just went, at this point, I'm not surprised. I went on our website and just searched for the term corrective. And so mm -hmm. episode 251 was titled 61 Corrective Actions. Episode 268 was titled 80 Corrective Actions. <laughs> so there you go. There you go. Yep. <laughs> so, I mean, long delay, but like it, it'll be good to have another another vehicle. I can't wait to see astronauts floating inside of it. Like I, I I'm a sucker mm -hmm. for those photos, and it'll be kind of interesting to see how the interior looks with people in it compared to uh, Crew Dragon. Yeah, I'm guessing it's not going to look nearly as sleek because Crew Dragon does got that yeah. going for it, if nothing else. So let's just translate on over to something I guess a little bit more uh, interesting, at least if you don't want to talk mm -hmm. about wet dress rehearsals. Let's talk about the <laughs> Artemis rover because um, I like rovers. You oh, can't yeah. go wrong there. Oh, yeah, I agree. 
So NASA issued um, an RFI, a request for information, uh, back in August. And the reason that this is coming up is because uh, responses to the RFI are due October 1st. So we're, I mean, we're still a ways off, but we're getting to the point where people are well into their second draft, right? <laughs> so I, I wanted to start out talking about the RFI because I don't think we talked about it last year. For anybody unfamiliar, an RFI is one of the major requests that NASA will do. They, they do RFIs and they do RFPs. RFP is a request for proposals, which is like, hey, we're looking for a contractor or we're looking for somebody to provide a service. Um, here are our requirements. Submit your bids. We'll pick out of the best of you. An RFI does not lead to contracts. Instead, it, it does two main communication things. First off, it provides information from the industry to NASA about the state of the industry and what kind of things people are thinking about, what kind of things uh, people think they can build. But it also provides information in the opposite direction. It is NASA broadcasting or, or telegraphing, I guess, to the industry what kind of RFPs they're going to put out in the future. Um, it's not a promise. Uh, it, it's sort of like, oh boy, I could get in trouble uh, for using an analogy that is not helpful to a lot of people. <laughs> but if you are familiar with uh, U.S. economics, it's kind of like when, uh, when the Fed uh, does a statement where they're just talking about the state of the economy. And in that, they will kind of telegraph and give suggestions about what they will be doing in the future uh, with the one thing that they control, which is the interest rate uh, on on federal bonds, on, on U.S. bonds. And, and so an RFI is kind of like that, where NASA just by issuing the RFI is saying, hey, we're looking into this subject. And then within the RFI, the things that, that questions that they're asking are talking about the things that they're concerned about and what things a contractor, a potential contractor might want to be focusing on right now, what kind of things you might want to be preparing to bid on. So in this RFI, they were looking at three or four main topics. They think that they're talking about four main topics. I think that they're talking about three main topics. Uh, I kind of, I kind of see two of these as, as merging into one. So the, the first is what are the extant capabilities to survive, uh, lunar night? And so they, they are looking at two different uh, night durations, an 85-hour night and a 125-hour night. And Chat and David, maybe you can tell me why these two numbers are significant, 85-hour and 125-hour. Is that a latitude thing? Is it is certain polar exploration regions are going to have an 85-hour night and then, you know, equatorial latitudes are going to have 125? Because I, I thought lunar night was just 125. The 85-hour one must be due to the latitude of where the rover might be set down, I guess. That's the only thing I can think of, too. I don't know. No idea. That's seem, It seems like a random number to me. Yeah, like 85 hours doesn't seem like a, a good number to prepare for if it's actually going to be 125. So it's got it's got to be a polar thing, I'm assuming. So uh, they want to know what kind of mass requirements uh, people think that they would need 
to survive for either 85 or 125 hours. They want to know what kind of energy requirements they think they would need. Um, and then also um, what additional constraints and requirements would happen if they met those mass and energy requirements and if, if they were able to build a vehicle that could, could survive the lunar night or you know, 60% of the lunar night. Um, so that, that's one main topic. Uh, a second main topic is, uh, 10 years of operation. They want to be able to put a rover on the moon that can be used by multiple, uh, Artemis surface operations missions, and they want to be able to keep it there for a decade. So, um, the questions that they were asking, uh, about a 10-year lifespan is what kind of maintenance would you need? Would you be able to to hit a 10-year lifespan if the only time you ever had gloves on your vehicle to do maintenance was during an EVA? And, you know, the EVA is only going to last, you know, 12 hours. We want to just, if we can dedicate, you know, an hour or two to you, could you survive with that or could you survive with less um which components uh are candidates for either maintenance or outright replacement by people um and then on top of that what are the extant solutions for keeping a rover operational for 10 years that don't require human maintenance uh and you know what what kind of mass are you talking about for uh, for being able to to keep a rover alive that long so that that's two main topics. I see one additional topic, but they they call this two different topics. I'm just lumping them in together. Uh, and it, it's basically how this is going to operate. One is, uh, is this vehicle something that we could deliver as part of CLIPS, the commercial lunar payload service? Uh, and uh, is this something that we could that that nasa could purchase as a service rather than purchasing the vehicle and then maintaining the vehicle could we just do a subscription fee basically and and yeah i i think that's that's really cool uh the the rfi as is seems to be promising some really interesting things uh in the future and i think i Found this is a request for information from like last year, but it does say that the lunar nights are expected to last about 85 hours depending on the uh, location on the lunar surface. So I guess that's what it comes down to. And um, uh, you're look you're looking at the at this RFI, right? Yeah. So it's there on page seven. It says, oh, oh, here you go. The LTV will need to be capable of changing locations five to ten kilometers between locations during the lunar night to limit the lunar night duration. So I, I guess that makes sense. If yeah. Five to ten kilometers. Yeah, I see it there. Does that mean that it's changing um, its altitude? Because I can't imagine that uh, your latitude would make that much of a difference. Although maybe it would, because the moon's smaller um, and there's no atmosphere, and so you get just beyond, you know, the horizon, and that might make a huge difference. Yeah. So the lunar circumference at the equator is uh, six thousand seven hundred eighty-six miles. Uh, so in kilometers, that is call it 11,000, 11,000 kilometers. So driving 10 kilometers, that, that would be a 10th of a percent. So yeah, my, my instant, my, like when I first read that, I was like, Oh, cool. So you just drive towards sunrise. <laughs> yeah. Um, or, or potentially drive away from sunset, but that, 
that'd be stupid because then you're circumnavigating the moon. But yeah, five to 10 kilometers is not a lot of, not a lot of uh, distance. So that's got to be what you could do at the pole. Yeah, maybe an altitude change. Yeah, like maybe you get up on top of a crater rim and you're, you know, basking in sunlight, then you go back down the other side and maybe you're, you know, you're in uh, a much longer lunar night. I mean, things like that can obviously... Or maybe like lunar night approaches, you run up on a crater, uh, a, a persistent sunlight crater, you soak in as much, you know, you soak in light until your target area has sunrise again then you drive mm-hmm. down yeah leon in the chat says maybe driving from the sunset sunset side of a hill to the sunrise side yeah like maybe you just drift back and forth across the po- or not across the pole but in and out of shade yeah that seems mm-hmm. reasonable as well but yeah most lunar nights are on the order of a few hours to 36 hours in duration and are expected to occur on the order of once a month so that has to be polar operations which is really interesting because that also means that you know, we're not talking about overhead sunlight. We're talking about glancing sunlight from the side. So, oh, I, geez, I should have, I should have <laughs> read this to begin with. The paragraph begins with NASA studies have identified that an LTV that is operating near the lunar South Pole will encounter at least two extended lunar nights per Earth year. <laughs> okay. Well, there you go. Jeez. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Good luck editing that to be a little more, uh, to the point. All right. So now I wanted to talk about the three rovers that we see so far. So like the thing is, this is an RFI, not an RFP. So teams will begin to form. These associations may or may not persist to the actual bid, right? Like um, these companies might like each other well enough, but not find the partnership to be profitable enough or agreeable enough to to actually build a rover together. Uh, maybe they will, maybe they won't. Maybe some of these will change up, but here are the teams that are beginning to form so far. Obviously, none of these proposals, I don't believe any of these proposals have been submitted at all. Um, but like, you know, take this with a grain of salt, but here are the teams that we see so far. And I, I think this is just kind of delightful to go through like this really feels like a training montage in the space industry to me so uh back in may uh lockheed martin and general motors announced that they were uh teaming up and just recently they added mda the canadian company that developed uh srms and ssrms uh, canadarm and canadarm 2 uh very good get for them uh a robotic arm would strengthen autonomous operations right and and like we've kind of suggested, the idea is for this rover to be able to do its own thing when there's not people there, uh, which just is a must at this point, right? Like if you're going to have something on the moon for 10 years, it had better be able to do science on its own. And uh, I've got concept images for each of these teams. The Lockheed Martin General Motors vehicle is probably the least uh, representative. Um and then we do have a, a quite representative image as well. But but this one's, yeah, unlikely to be what the final thing looks like. And it's really good because it looks like uh, somebody on their hands and their, their knees mm-hmm. and elbows. It's not good. 
So then the second team is uh, Northrop Grumman, Intuitive Machines, Michelin Tires, AVL, and Lunar Outpost. Uh, this partnership was announced back in November. Um, they will be flying on Intuitive Machines Nova D Lander, uh, which is an upgraded version of intuitive machines nova c lander nova c is planned to fly in 2022 and on board will be a rover called map m-a-p-p map is built by lunar outpost another partner so they they kind of seem like they come together as a, as a package deal right so uh, uh intuitive machines is doing the lander lunar outpost is uh doing the roving uh, or, or at least contributing their, their roving knowledge. Um, AVL is an Austrian engineering company. Um, they do studies on battery electric vehicles here on earth, as well as autonomous driving. So they're kind of contributing to the, the electric drive system and the, the autonomous systems. And then the, the last one is, uh, Michelin. Guess what they're doing? Yeah, it's the tires. Um, they're, they're building, uh, you know, air, airless tires, uh, one can assume that they're going to look very much like the airless tires that we've already seen on the moon and Mars, but yeah, there you go. So it, it's not super clear how representative their concept image is, uh, but at least it looks better. <laughs> I mean, it looks more plausible. I kind of like the first one, yet it does kind of have an awkward look to it, but it looks very sci-fi. It looks very futuristic. Yeah. Yeah, and Northrop Grumman's looks like a like an actual Apollo rover with uh, mm -hmm. with a roll bar on it, um, yeah. which right exactly it's almost cartoony at this point because it's just a little stereotypical. But yeah, so who, who knows what that'll look like? Now the final vehicle is one that I'm uh, pretty excited about. It's from uh, Venturi Astrolab. Uh, they revealed an actual prototype back in March. It's called Flex, uh, <laughs> which, uh, boy, is an acronym. Flex stands for Flexible Logistics and Exploration. Um, right. So Flex uh, is supposed to, it is specced currently for 150 kilograms of cargo. David, you just opened the article. It's 150, not 1,500, which is what I wrote, right? Is it really? No, it's, no, it's 1,500. Yeah. Holy yep. crap. Um, and uh, they say that you can store cargo above or below deck. So, you know, uh, electric vehicles now have a trunk in the back and a frunk in the front. What's a What's a trunk below? Is that a bunk? A, a lunk if it's a lower trunk? I guess it's just a cargo hold. Like, what are you, like in buses when you... What do yeah, you the call suitcase. That? Yeah, the suitcase cargo area. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then, you know, above deck would be where the people sit, but I guess you can also stack up cargo there. Uh, Chubby in the chat says it looks like a mining trolley. And yeah, it looks like a, it looks like a, what, what's the name of that shape? A, a trapezoid. Mm -hmm. It looks like a trapezoid with four rover wheels sticking out of it and a spare wheel on the front. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a mining cart that, got mixed with uh spirit and opportunity and got mixed with a backwards jeep in the front of yeah. notes it it reminds me of like indiana jones when i saw those two astronauts in that little image there like you know that scene and <laughs> i guess it's temple of doom it just it just looks like right. that 
Yeah, Colin Chat says it looks very top heavy and unstable in one sixth gravity. Because yeah, the, the wheels are small and the wheels are on like outriggers almost. Uh, and the whole thing has got a very high center of gravity. So I I don't know. The high center of gravity means it's got a lot of ground clearance. But yeah, it is it gonna flip as soon as the wheels hit something? Who knows? Definitely looks like a slower top speed than any of the than either of the other two vehicles. But while we don't know very much about uh, the other two vehicles, right, we know that this thing is supposed to be able to carry 100 and uh, 1,500 uh, kilograms of cargo, uh, up to two astronauts, and they tested their full-size prototype near Death Valley. So the image that will be in the show notes is an actual vehicle with actual people in it. One of those two people, I believe one of the two people in this photo is Chris Hadfield. Uh, he was involved in their test, uh, at, at, uh, near death Valley. Um, and he really liked the thing. He said it was a blast to drive. Mm -hmm. Venturi Astrolab, uh, runs on a design build break repeat cycle, uh, which I, I think is pretty cool. Um, they're, they're already testing, a vehicle before they even have a customer because they want to do the fail or they fail often, um, which, you know, is just smart design structure, but also it yields a lot of fun photos and explosion videos. Uh, hopefully we'll have, you know, a, a, an uncrewed test where they, you know, see how hard it is to crash this thing. But yeah, the, that's, that's the, the three teams that we see right now for the Artemis rover. rolling right along all right there's my rover reference uh let's do some nice. short and sweets <laughs> what is the first one yeah astranus improvement so astranus is working on a small geostationary communications constellation by small they mean 350 kilograms a CubeSat tech demo was launched in 2018, proving out their software-defined radio. Their first customer, Pacific Data Port of Alaska, was booked in 2019. Now, they are on track to launch their first four operational vehicles in 2023. This week, they announced a design improvement, a gimbal for their electric propulsion module. This presumably allows the ION engine to participate in attitude control, reducing the expenditure of RCS propellant. The company says this change conservatively adds a year of operational life. These first four satellites are also getting a few months worth of fuel reduction due to their underbooked Falcon 9 being able to put them into a more optimal transfer orbit. And then next up, House Science Committee versus the NTSB. Leaders of the House Science Committee are asking the Biden administration to withdraw a proposed regulation by the NTSB or the National Transportation Safety Board that would give them the authority to investigate launch failures. The House Science Committee argues that this is a reduplication of the FAA's role in launch vehicle mishaps and that it is an unlawful act that is inconsistent with existing interagency agreements and regulations, which I think I Okay, third, Astra Electric. Apollo Fusion demonstrated their Apollo Constellation engine on a spaceflight mission in summer of 2021. Shortly thereafter, they were purchased by Astra, who is now producing the Astra spacecraft engine. They've made their first public sale to Leo Stella, marking a move into phase two of Chris Kemp's plan for the company. Phase three is to vertically integrate launch systems and space systems into an Astra constellation that will, quote, power the space economy. A test of Rocket 4 is planned for later this year. 
All right, and then fourthly, ULA puts in a big order. Aerojet Rocketdyne has received an order for 116 of the RL10C-X engines from ULA. This large purchase will be used to meet the equally large order of Project Kuiper to put a portion of its 3,236 broadband satellites into orbit. The RL-10 engines will serve as the upper stage for ULA's Vulcan Centaur rocket, scheduled for its first flight later this year. The RL-10C-X is a variant of the RL-10 engine that uses additive manufacturing and other technologies to improve the engine, and it will also have an ISP of 461 seconds, making it the most efficient of the RL-10 family. That's a pretty cool upper stage, to be honest. I didn't know that they did that much additive manufacturing. Well, I mean, Centaur is a fantastic upper stage, um, and then the, the RL-10 is a fantastic engine, and the, the CX variant sounds pretty cool as well. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and corrections, and we have a... I guess a correction burn from Leon Running Man. It is specifically, yeah, it's specifically stated to not quite be a correction burn. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so. not quite a correction. Well, this is something that actually, I, it just as a coincidence, comes up briefly in the uh, This Week in Spaceflight History that we'll be doing shortly. So oh, I just, yeah, and I think I got, I mean, I didn't realize the distinction, but I did word what I wrote correctly. So we won't be getting this correction a second time, but yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay, good. All right. Well, let me, I'm just going to, I'm going to read this uh, pretty much verbatim, I think, because uh, I, I wasn't able to do any additional research and, and what Leon said sounds about right to me. So this is in reference to the, this week in spaceflight history that I did last week uh, about LeSat uh, three and a little bit of four, but mostly three. And uh, Leon says, your description of the perigee kick motor for LeSat as a Minuteman three upper stage solid rocket motor caught me off guard. I thought that had to be an error, but I did a lot of digging and found the same sources you probably do to corroborate that and nothing to refute it. But something isn't right with that info, since by law, ICBM motors cannot be transferred or sold to a private company. It also doesn't make sense really that the motor, the SR-73, has some special functionality, e.g. thrust termination, that would make it pretty non-optimal for space launch and pretty difficult to permit on the shuttle. My best guess is that they use a commercial motor that was derived from the SR-73 design without those added features, similar to the way a commercial variant of the Peacekeeper first stage was developed and used for the Taurus. That theory would be supported by the fact that the listed mass for the LESAT motor is a bit less than the advertised mass of the SR-73. So that'd be uh, 7,300 pounds uh, and 7,900 pounds respectively. So like, yeah, I, I totally didn't even think about that, but yeah, I think you're absolutely right. This has got to be a variant, uh, mm -hmm. uh, of that engine, but yeah, thrust termination for a solid, uh, for a solid motor, David, you, you, you know what, what that looks like, right? Yeah. I guess that would be blowing it up, right? <laughs> <laughs> Basically. Yeah. Blowing it up or, or punching a hole in the side, yeah. And I guess for missiles, that's important just uh, for termination, or is it something to do with, uh, like, I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know much about uh, how Peacekeeper missiles and things like that work, but why yeah. would that be necessary? Yeah, the two two main reasons. One would be for, for mission termination, which um, is better handled by an actual termination system. It's, it's better to blow the whole thing up rather than just killing the engine and letting it fall where it may. Um, but actually for guidance, uh, thrust termination is good. Being able to say, Hey, let's stop accelerating, uh, can be mm -hmm. important for, for hitting your target. 
Joe Barnard uh, on on YouTube does hobby rockets, um, and he's trying really hard to land a hobby rocket like a Falcon Nine. Mm, and so his first attempt to throttle a solid rocket motor was to not throttle it at all, but instead gimbal its thrust and just gimbal enough so that your thrust happens to terminate exactly when you need it to terminate. And that wound up being really tough for a number of reasons, not least of which was the fact that commercial hobby rockets are not very reliable uh, on the duration of their thrust. So he would kind of have this thing cut out almost when it was supposed to, but not quite. And his rockets would just fall over. And so he has switched to um, actually uh, having actuating like fingers that reach into the thrust and redirect it so that he can actually do um, pulsed thrust out of this thing and just kind of go stuttering to the ground at the right, at the right speed hmm. of deceleration. But like, I, I bet you he knows a lot about thrust termination and solid rockets. And I'll bet you at some point he's been tempted to punch a hole in the side of his solid rocket. Well, cool. I'm really excited to hear how this relates to your topic. Yeah. All right. Uh, so moving on to this week in space flight history, we have six winners. We have Desky Miller, the Greek, Paul Mathchoff, Chris, Uncle Willie, and Leon Running Man. So congratulations to everyone. They got the correct guess and full credit because it wasn't hard to figure out exactly how the clue ties in with the event. The yeah. clue was it's not just a steak sauce, and the event is the launch of the Antares A1 rocket. Get it? Yeah. So that was kind of a lame clue. Um, hey. just, uh, hey, there, you, it's, it's not quite a Googleable name because it's the one is spelled out in the rocket. That's true. Yeah. It, it is a dash O N E a one. Um, yeah. So it's not just a steak sauce. All right. So this event was on the 21st of April, 2013. And as I said, the launch or this was the maiden flight of, uh, the Antares launch vehicle. One, quick fact it was originally named the Taurus 2 I didn't know that I've always known it as Antares um, and they did quickly rename it in 2011 so by this point it was already called the Antares but originally it was called Taurus 2 so that was I guess the vehicle development name I guess you could say yeah so I, I think it was named after the star from what I read that's where they came up with the name so this was uh, developed by Orbital Sciences which is now part of North Grumman but I'm just going to call them Orbital Sciences because that's what they were at the time so we'll just say that I don't want to say North Grumman that sounds a bit odd since uh, they didn't have anything to do with it at the time uh, so why Antares um, this is kind of the first thing I wanted to start with is like why did Antares come to be so this was uh, designed to launch the Cygnus cargo resupply vehicle. And this was for the, I believe, the first COTS competition back in 2006. And uh, they figured they could use it for other commercial uses as well, which they occasionally do, I think. Um, mostly it's just for cargo resupply, but, you know, it's a capable rocket. So that's kind of why it came about and it is the most powerful rocket that Orbital Sciences had in Northrop Grumman now has. So I'm thinking about Minotaur, which which was a solid rocket. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wanted to, like, my, my internal question is like, well, why do you need to develop a new rocket if you already have one? So, like, let's, let's look. Um, the Minotaur C, its payload to LEO is 1,400 kilograms. And Antares, I don't know if you're going to talk about this. I uh, hope I'm not stepping on your feet. But its payload to LEO is 8,000 kilograms. Mm -hmm. And 
So like in my head, they're connected because they come from the same company. But yeah, I mean, solid to liquid. I don't think that Antares is based on the Minotaur or the, the Taurus. So part of it might be. I can't remember the details of all of Taurus. I think one thing is, which would be the upper stage, I think. The solid upper stage. Yeah. And, and again, going back to the correction burn we had. So that's kind of where it ties in. Um, because if you recall in the, in the correction burn, uh, the SR-73... That was a motor that was on Taurus 1, I think it was, uh, if that's what Leon Running Man the said. The Taurus 1, yeah. So the second yeah. stage of the Minotaur C. And this shares a similar stage, but not exactly the same. And again, he kind of already covered that, actually, but we'll just uh, okay. reference it again. So like, if you're going to be transporting a cargo resupply vehicle, you're probably going to need a little bit more lift than uh, a Minotaur. Um, so how did they do this? So this is kind of a, a vehicle built from spare parts, lying around, sort of. So in 2006, Orbital lost its first round bid for the COTS contract. Um, and instead, that went to Rocket Plane Kistler and uh, like four or five other companies. And I think that SpaceX was one of them. But Rocket Plane Kistler actually fell through. They couldn't secure the funding. And then that's when they picked Orbital, kind of like the runner-up. And what's interesting about the Antares launch vehicle is that in many ways it's based on, or it shares a lot in common with what Rocket Plane Kistler was going for, which was their K-1 rocket, which was going to have a pair of NK-33 engines, which Orbital Sciences has. Uh, that's what they used, at least for this first version. Now they use the RD-181s or whatever the modified version is of that. I don't remember what the Aerojet Rocketdyne uh, name is. I think it's the RD-186 or something or other, or the AR-180 somethings. Um, but that's later on. So these are the NK-33s, which they changed the name to AJ-26. Yeah, Kistler was actually the original customer uh, for these engines. And then when they weren't going to going to do anything with them, that's when, when Orbital came along and said, hey, we can use those instead, and they did. There were some modifications that had to be made in order to make them suitable for American launch vehicles, and that was like a term that I kept finding. So it, it kind of didn't seem to matter exactly what rocket they were going on. It's just that there was something about these engines that was fundamentally Soviet that needed to be made fundamentally American. Um, and mostly it was just a lot of upgrades because these engines are like 40 years old, or at least at the time, now they're more like 50 years old, um, but they're no longer used. Uh, so they had to make some upgrades um, they actually modified the gimbal bearings, or they used a modified version of the Space Shuttle main engines, the gimbal bearings. And this was at least for the Kistler K1. That's what I read in a PDF. I couldn't find any specific information on the Antares launch vehicle, but it seems that a lot of this stuff is quite similar. So I'm guessing that they kept it because the Space Shuttle main engines, uh, they obviously used liquid hydrogen. So there were some temperature considerations that you didn't need to take into account for something that runs on Carolox. Um, so it was those kinds of changes. Um, but then there were other modifications that were made to ensure a longer burn time and that these engines could actually restart. So they needed a restart capability. I guess the Soviet N1 rocket, um, I don't know if restart was necessary. I'm guessing not because apparently these engines did not have that ability until they were modified to do so. And so the restart capability was just so that you could test them? I mean, it's the first stage. It's not like it's not like it needs to, you know, drift or coast up and then restart. It might be for that. It might also be that the other, uh, the NK thirty four, I believe is the number, and I should have put that in here. It probably is somewhere. Um, that's just a, a vacuum optimized version, so it's kind of the same engine, just with a longer nozzle or a larger nozzle. So maybe it's because of that as well. Because that might actually need restore capability. On the Antares? No, not on the Antares, but on, sorry, on... Oh, the, the 
K1 or the... I believe it was, yeah, the Kistler K1. I think it's called the K1, yeah. The Kistler launch vehicle. Okay. Um, I'm thinking that that might be why, but they didn't say exactly why restart. Yeah, because I was kind of wondering too, like why do you need to restart first stage engines? Um, yeah. Maybe just for testing then. Oh, yeah. And Chubby, Chubby says that's exactly what it is in the chat. Uh, that was one of the flaws of the N1. Its first stage engines could not be tested because they could only be fired once. Um, and mm-hmm. then the, um, as far as Americanizing it, I believe the American version of RP1 is different than the kerosene that they use uh, in Russia. Mm-hmm. And so there are a couple of tweaks that you have to do to, you know, change. And it's not like a real propellant change, but it's like a different version of the propellant. Yeah. And so the first stage systems, the actual entire first stage kind of comes from, uh, like, well, not from Russia, in this case, Ukraine. So the first stage systems, tanks, pressurization tanks, valve sensors, feed lines, tubing, and the wiring and all that was actually manufactured by uh, Yuzhmash, which is a company in Ukraine. And we talked about, I think, last week or the week before, how much of a problem this is um, yep. for the Antares launch vehicle now, because uh, <laughs> there's some issues there. So this first stage is largely based on the Zenit series launch vehicle. So it's kind of like the first stage of a Zenit that they're now reappropriating for a first stage on an American launch vehicle. So you can kind of think of it like that. The 200 series, which is what's now used, those actually use modified RD-181 engines because after the failure back in, what was it, 2014, I think it was, mm-hmm. when we watched that huge uh, conflagration on the launch pad, uh, they kind of realized they probably shouldn't be using these 40-year-old engines but they still went Russian, so they just bought a different set of Russian engines, and that's what they're flying now. Yeah, which which is weird because um, Aerojet was looking at like restarting production, and, and like <laughs> they kind of go, you know what, you know what, the, the NK thirty three, it's nice, but we're <laughs> we're gonna update to a newer model. <laughs> I think they are trying to move away from that now, right? Or maybe just build their own. Didn't did we just recently discuss this? What they're doing about the RD one eighty one engines, and they have yeah, they're, some. They're basically not going to be able to get anymore. Yeah, they have. Yeah. I don't know what the supplies at the moment, but uh, they're gonna have to figure something out. So yeah, but uh, yeah, this first flight was not with the RD one eighty ones. It was with the AJ twenty sixes or the NK thirty threes, which were designed for the big N one Soviet rocket, which just after many test failures, they just kind of, you know, abandoned it. And then they had all these spare engines that they were just lying around and they were going to destroy them apparently um, until some American space company, they came along and said, Hey, we'll take those from you. And, uh, you know, all that post cold war stuff that was going on mm-hmm. uh, back in the mid nineties. Yeah. So the first flight was in the one ten configuration. So that means uh, just to get the nomenclature down the first one, that means that it flew those two AJ 26 dash 62 engines and i think the 62 is just a modified for uh this launch vehicle specifically so yeah two of those engines the second one in that 110 is a caster 30a solid rocket motor and so this is based on a derivative of the first stage motor for the mx peacekeeper uh which was an experimental intercontinental ballistic missile so this is the one that um again is a derivative of that first stage, not the actual first stage, just so I don't piss off Leon Running Man. So that I think is the distinction, right? It's a derivative, not the actual, not the actual stage itself or the actual motor. And then the zero in that 110 just means that there's no third stage, but it does have that option for a third stage. Which which could be uh, hypergolic too, which is kind of weird. Well, you could either use another caster engine. You could just put two of them on there. Um, or yeah, you could use a hypergolic. So for the maiden flight, they did not 
use a Cygnus, obviously, but they did use a mass simulator, which was a 3,800 kilogram mass simulator. Um, so that's obviously not anything useful, but they did attach some payloads to it. Uh, so they had three One U phone sats, which was to demonstrate the use of smartphones as avionics in CubeSats. And these were modified Android phones. And I think I have some memory of this because I thought it was oh, yeah. so cool. Yeah, I remember this. You can use an Android phone for avionics in a CubeSat. That's pretty cool. And like, you know, to be fair, like we fly a lot of cell phone parts in space today because, um, you mm-hmm. know, they're readily available cots. But yeah, uh, but yeah they, they like actually <laughs> we're buying android phones and taking taking the screen off and putting them in a space so yeah you have those three one u cube sets and then you have one three u dove set uh which is an earth imaging satellite we talk about those a lot um oh, yeah. built by cosmogia i guess back then but now it's called planet labs and yeah these dove sets are everywhere uh you know the drill you know how those are so but this was the i believe the very first one was sort of like uh their test uh for their Dovesat uh, constellation or fleet or whatever you want to call it, but uh, yeah, there's not much to talk about with the uh, the actual launch. It went so well. Um, it lifted off from uh, the Mid Atlantic Regional Spaceport uh, in Wallops, no issues. In the only problem on the maiden flight, they did have one weather issue, and then they had on a different day a premature disconnect of an umbilical, and um, that was it. They just reset for I believe the next day or two days later, and it flew just fine. So that's your maiden launch, your steak sauce. Uh, your steak sauce in space. Okay, great. Well, next week is the 26th of April to the 2nd of May. It's going to be Dennis's to Wissif, uh, but do you have a clue for him? Yes. The clue for him is next week in 2002, <laughs> the end of a dream to be chased by others. See, that's a good poetic, poetic and yeah. cryptic, and I have no idea what that's about. Better than <laughs> a steak sauce clue. <laughs> I mean, you know, steak sauce has its place, just not on steak. Uh, well, if you have uh, a guess as to what this very poetic clue is in reference to, uh, shoot us a tweet. Use the hashtag ThisWeekSF. And good luck, everybody. Good luck. So moving right along to upcoming spaceflight events, just three of those this week. What's the first one? Yep. First up is a Falcon 9 Block 5 launching Starlink Group 414. Space Launch Now says this is 53 satellites. I refuse to fact check that. (laughs) Uh, This is going to be launching uh, on Thursday, April 21st at 15 hours, uh, 1516 hours UTC. Um, and, uh, that's flying out of SLC 40 at Cape Canaveral. And then after that, on the 22nd slash 23rd, we have the launch of an electron and that is launching there and back again. That's the name of the mission. This is actually an NET no earlier than the 22nd with a window of 2235 through 040. However you say that, I can never remember. Um, and that is UTC. So yeah, kind of straddle midnight um, and that'll be launching from launch complex one pet a from the bahia right mahia mahia okay okay from the mahia peninsula i couldn't remember the name of the peninsula i don't know where i got bahia from that's something else yeah so check out that mission if it indeed launches on that date it hopefully will they're they're facing weather issues so if it it doesn't it's just going to be weather i say very hopefully okay And then the the last one, this is a this is a really long event, which is kind of cool. So it's going to be a Falcon 9 Block 5 launching Crew 4. Uh, so this is a Crew Dragon going up to station um, 
on board is going to be Lindgren, Hines, Watkins, and Cristoforetti. At least two of those names I know for sure. I think I recognize uh, one of the other two as well. Um, and so the launch is going to be happening on Saturday, April 23rd at 0926 hours UTC uh, out of uh, Launch Complex 39A at the Cape. And then what's really cool is that the coverage on NASA TV is going to continue from the launch all the way through the docking hatch opening and welcoming ceremony. The uncool part of that, at least for me on the West Coast or on the East Coast, is that uh, that's 1.45 a.m. Eastern time. And then the um, the docking is scheduled uh, at uh, 6 a.m. Eastern time, or at least the, the coverage starts at 6 a.m. Eastern time. Uh, the hatch opening and welcome ceremony uh, coverage begins at 7.50 a.m. Eastern time. Uh, and yeah, if if you're not in the U.S. and this is a more convenient time, it'd be really cool to watch this whole thing in real time uh, as it plays out with no break in coverage. It's going to be pretty cool. All right. Uh, those are your upcoming Space Flight events. All right. And with that, let's do over the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. A special shout out this week to Colin Chubby, Deathkin, Leon Running Man, Mike Stewart. I don't know. I probably missed somebody in there. Uh, but I, I didn't write him down like Dennis does because he's really good at this and I'm not. Yeah, he is. Uh, but thank you to all these people for joining us live in today's chat. And if you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, please visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. And you can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit, we're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it. We'll see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody.